What a great prayer to have on our lips as we come to the preaching of the word that God would have his way with us. I pray that it's truly the prayer of our heart. Let's turn our Bibles to the book of 1 Peter in chapter 1. We're going to read from the first verse all the way down through verse 16. And as we read, we'll be reminded of our study thus far through this epistle. And we'll build to verse 13 through 16, our text for today. Please follow along in your Bibles as I read. Hear now the word of the living God. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens, scattered through Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable and undefiled and will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you, who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. As to this salvation, the prophets who prophesied of the grace that would come to you made careful searches and inquiries, seeking to know what person or time the Spirit of Christ within them was indicating as he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories to follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in these things which have now been announced to you through those who preach the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels long to look. Therefore, gird up the loins of your mind. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And as obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. God, we pray your blessing now on your word. We pray that you would hide this preacher behind the cross, 
that we would hear the voice of Christ through this means of grace this morning. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. We have said that this first section of 1 Peter can go under the title salvation. But today we come to find subdivisions. We, we come here to see that the first part through verse 12 on salvation could be labeled salvation's confidence. Because we have in these verses so much of the great covenant salvation that we have in Christ delineated and marked out for us in this text through verse 12. Let's take just a moment. I know we just read it, but let's just look back through and see these wonderful confidences that we can have in salvation. From first from verse 1, we are resident aliens. We live here, but our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 2, we are cleansed and sealed in this salvation by the sprinkling of the blood of Christ Jesus. Verse 3, we are objects of God's great mercy. Born again by the will and the work of God, we now have a living hope through the resurrected Savior. Verse 4, we have an inheritance. An inheritance guarded for us, which cannot perish, fail, or fade away. Verse 5, not only is that inheritance guarded for us, but we are protected for the inheritance, protected by God's power for the age to come. Verses 6 and 7, we see that even in the face of trials and troubles, we rejoice in this great salvation, knowing that our loving Heavenly Father is sovereign and is in control of all things. Verse 9, we read that the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls. Verses 10 and 11, we see that the gospel of Jesus Christ was the eternal plan of God prophesied in Scripture. And then finally in verse 12, we are the greatest beneficiaries of the prophets of the Old Testament. Also of the preaching of the gospel preachers and the apostles and the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. And all these things we label today under salvation's confidence. And by defining and delineating these blessings, we have this confidence which leads us to praise and adoration and gratitude to the God of our salvation. Then after we see salvation's confidence, we come to verse 13 and following, actually verses 13 all the way through chapter 2, verse 10, we have under the title, Salvation's Consequence. Or salvation's consequences. You can make it plural or singular. I'm okay either way. So let us consider this. The grace of God to save sinners that has been outlined for us in the first 12 verses. It's so great that the angels long to peer into the beauty of it. And beloved Christians, we possess it. We are the objects of God's loving grace. So doesn't this beg the question, how then 
are we to respond? As Francis Schaeffer said, how then shall we live? God has saved us. Now what? I've titled the message, Living in Light of Salvation. Living in Light of Salvation. And that's what we'll find here in verse 13 and following all the way through chapter 2, verse 10. We won't cover all that today. But in verse 13, the first word we find here is, therefore. If you've hung out with me very often, you're, I see some of you shaking your head. Man, it's a good saying. If you see in the scripture, therefore, you need to see what it's there for. We need to understand what it's there for. So we need to understand why this word is here. Someone has said that our Christian walk is one big therefore. God has saved, therefore. Let's say this. God saves despite, and then we live, therefore. Therefore is an important word. It, it means in consequence of or as a result of. I mean, it's a conjunction. It adds things together. But as a result of or as a consequence of. Because of God's salvation, because God has brought salvation, causing us to be born again. What is the result of that? What is the outcome God saves, therefore, what? What are the consequences of salvation? As we look here and we see the consequences of salvation, the therefore part, we need to be warned of a danger. The danger is that we want to jump to the therefore part. If we jump to the therefore without the stuff that comes before, we will be in danger. I, I remember when I began to preach through the book of Ephesians. And some of you know verses, you have them memorized from Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. I remember people saying, I can't wait till we get to Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, the, where the rubber meets the road, the practical stuff. That's the good stuff. But we needed Ephesians 1, 2, and 3 to prepare us for Ephesians 4, 5, and 6. We needed what came before to prepare us for the therefore. Some of you know, most of Paul's letters are written so that the last half is the therefore. The last half is the therefore. I think of Romans. Uh, and, and in the middle of Romans chapter 12, he comes there and he says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren. And that's the, the hinge point where Romans changes. Most of Paul's writings, Paul's letters are like that. That the last half is the therefore. But Peter, different guy and his personality and his writing comes through here. Peter intersperses the therefore application along the way. And we have that here in this section. Now I'm using the therefore part and what comes before and what comes after. The technical language that we would use to describe this is indicatives and imperatives. Indicatives indicate. Indicatives 
teach us some truth. They indicate something and then the imperatives come after and they tell us how we should live, how we should obey, how we should behave and act in light of the indicatives, in light of the truth that was taught. So as we come here to the therefore of verse 13 and we see these imperatives it is good that we have not skipped to this part. That we have not skipped over the indicatives that came before. We needed what has come before to prepare us for verse 13, therefore. And this is important. And I want to illustrate how important it is. And we'll do this by seeing one problem that we can have. And we'll take a quick look. Down to verse 16. Because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Now this is an imperative. This is a command. This is, this is the therefore. But if we come to this, and we have skipped the first part, if we don't get salvation's confidence, if we don't get the indicatives, then we're going to step into error here. We're going to step into one of two errors in this section. If we skip over or ignore the indicatives, then we will misapply the imperatives. Either we'll come to this command, be holy, and we will be self-assured and self-confident, and we'll say something like, okay, I got this. Watch my holiness. Look at that. I'm going to obey this command. We'll, we'll come with self-confidence. And what a tragedy that would be. And, and by the way, to live in that way, we have to redefine holiness to match us, really. Or the other error is that we come to verse 16 and we see the command, be holy. We are to be holy because God is holy. And we look at that and we know our sin. And we walk away from this text defeated. And we don't even attempt to walk in holiness as we should. We don't even attempt to obey the command because we come defeated. We must, Christians, rightly understand the indicatives so that we don't err in the imperatives. Beloved, the only way the only way to rightly understand and walk in the consequences of salvation is to first understand the confidence of salvation. We must first understand the election, the sovereignty, and the security through Christ's blood that were laid out for us before. When we come face to face with holiness, if we are uninstructed, by the before part, we will be unprepared and how we implement the instructions will be disaster. That's why, friends, we've spent seven sermons up to this point coming to therefore. This is why each and every week we have read and reread this entire section that it would be on our minds so that when we arrive at verse 13, we come ready for therefore. So this morning, Jesus saves, therefore. 
God has caused us to be born again. Therefore, we are heirs to this great inheritance. Therefore, that's what it's there for. So we see in verse 13, therefore, and then we have five imperatives, five commands, five essential consequences of our salvation. And we'll go through those very quickly and you'll see them right here in the text. New American Standard and ESV says, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. And then lastly, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So we have these five imperatives, five commands, five consequences of salvation. Let's dig in. In the first place, prepare your minds for action. That's what you read in your New American Standard and your ESV. If you'll notice, as I read, I read uh, the King James translation there. Our modern translations, uh, I, I love my New American Standard Bible, but sometimes we have to point out and say, hey, they were trying to help us here, but they didn't help us. This is my opinion. They, they were trying to help us by eliminating an, an antiquated idiom or a metaphor here that, that no longer, nobody says today, Gird up your loins. When's the last time you, well, you heard it just a few minutes ago? But, but when's the last time we've used that in our vernacular? Nobody speaks like that. But when we lose that, we lose something very important. So, so the King James gives us the plain reading of the text. Gird up the loins of your mind. And I don't want to lose this very helpful word picture to instruct us. What is it to gird up the loins of your mind? A, a man in Peter's day would wear a robe open at the bottom and to some degree long and flowing. But there were times when a man would need to run or work or even to fight. And you couldn't have that robe getting in the way. How cumbersome would that be? So they would grab the loose ends of this garment and tuck them into their belt. Aren't you all glad right now that I'm not wearing a robe to illustrate? But you can imagine, you can think about it, how that, how that would work and how that would look. And, and, and it's been said that it looked silly. It looked ridiculous. Which may be why a, an adult Jewish man would not run. That was considered an embarrassment for an adult Jewish man to run. He would have to gird up the loins of his garments and it would be an embarrassment. But we are, well, I digress and we got to get on because this is, we got stuff to talk about here. So they would gird up the loins, gird up their loins. And, and the phrase gird up your loins denotes a getting ready, a preparation for running, working, fighting a battle, a preparation for some action. That's the word picture here. And we see gird up your loins makes a person ready for action with a more expeditious, uh, prudent 
wisdom. It's better to have your loins gird about you. Maybe you remember from Ephesians 6, Paul uses this same terminology when he says, stand firm, having your loins gird about you with truth. So we can bring now into the text that we have before us an understanding that the girding of the loins of our mind will involve and include truth. That is the word of God. So we have this picture here, girding up the loins of our minds, preparing for action. And that's why we have in the New American Standard, the ESV, prepare your minds. But I think we need that whole picture there. When we consider then that the angels long to look into the mysteries of God's grace. How can we Christians, how can we not gird up the loins of our minds and apply our minds to these mysteries. How can we not be diligent in guarding our thoughts? How can we let loose thoughts and rogue ideas come into our minds and pull us off the righteous path? Gird up the loins of your minds so we must then take control of our minds. Sometimes we, we speak as though our minds control us. No, we must control our minds. We must do as the scripture says and take every thought captive. Now there are certainly things that come in, thoughts that come in that we uh, have no control over, that we can't help. But take that thought captive and some of those things need to be kicked out. We shouldn't let our minds drift or wander sinfully. Rather, we should have minds that are girded up, that are in fighting condition, that are ready for work. The grace and salvation of God should be familiar and well-traveled paths of thought. The prophets prophesied, the angels inquired, the apostles of Christ preached, and now we think, we meditate, we think of the grace of God through Jesus Christ, we think of the virgin birth, we think of the union of God and man in the man Christ Jesus, we think of the person and the office and the suffering and death of Christ, we meditate on the resurrection and on the glory of Christ. The salvation of sinners. And by thinking on these things, we gird up the loins of our minds. Gill says of the girding of our minds that it may be expressive of the readiness of believers as pilgrims and travelers for their journey toward the heavenly country. And to run the race set before them and also to do every good work according to the station they are placed in. To serve their Lord and Master Jesus Christ in whatsoever he calls them to and to wait for his coming. Christians, we must gird up the loins of our minds. And then we see in the second place, keep sober in spirit. Soberness 
is meant to be opposed to the overindulgence of drink. At, at least it is that. Without sobriety, we cannot prepare and gird up the loins of our minds. So we know that this command to keep sober is at least this. But I believe it's more than this. It's more than temperance in drink. We can allow the cares of this life to come in upon us in a way that inebriates us. If left unchecked, life with its concerns, with its worries, problems, anxieties, and burdens can choke out the word and cause the word of God to be in us unfruitful. It can lead us to temptation. It can cause us to turn to foolish and hurtful lusts. We can be inebriated by life to the point that we neglect our faith in Christ. Be sober. Keep sober in spirit. One pastor added that the danger here also includes being intoxicated with errors and false doctrines which lull men to sleep and render them incapable of serving Christ and His church and they turn their heads from faith to fables and are contrary to the words of truth and soberness. John Calvin adds, For since even the least taste of the allurements of the world stealthily draw us from God, when one plunges himself into these, he must necessarily become sleepy and stupid and he forgets God and the things of God. So keep sober in spirit. It's not only a command not to be drunk with wine, but also not to be undone by the anxieties and cares of the world and to guard against error and false doctrine. Gird up the loins of your mind. Keep sober in spirit. And thirdly, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Fix your hope completely on the grace of God. What is suggested here is that those who are not girding up their minds, those who are not keeping sober in spirit, they have dropped the reins of their minds to go loosely after the vain and empty things. Those people do not have their hope fixed fully on the grace of God. They may have had some measure of hope, but they are vacillating. They are wavering in mind and spirit. Their hope was not fixed. Beloved, we need a hope that is solid, that is fixed, that is established on and focused on Jesus Christ. Lest we be tossed about by every wind. The sense here of a fixed hope, it could be said that we hope perfectly or that we hope in a completed way. Not being put to sleep by the trappings of the world, but perfectly awake, perfectly fixed on Christ, having a perfect hope. Our hope drawing from and resting on that new life to which we were born again. 
Salvation's confidence. Hebrews 6 instructs us in this same way. And we read there, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. May it be our prayer that God would give us a faith that is sincere and steadfast, that he would give us a love that is honest and a hope without hypocrisy fixed on his grace, fixed on Christ. Our hope fixed on God's grace, electing grace, redeeming grace, justifying grace, pardoning grace, adopting grace. Salvation is all of grace. And it is all in Jesus Christ that our hope is fixed then on Him. In Him, His grace is made fully known. We have a righteousness apart from the works of the law. We have eternal life. We have the gospel given to us as a way to eternal life, pointing us to Jesus Christ. And all the grace of the gospel brings us to rest comfortably. In this hope fixed on him. Before we leave this, we should say that some versions, some ancient versions, instead of grace, having your hope fixed on grace, read joy, having your hope fixed on joy. So this is instructive about joy to us and how the fountain of our joy is so closely related to the grace of God. Gird up the loins of your minds. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope fully on the grace of Christ. And then consider fourthly, verse 14, as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance. As obedient children or as children of obedience. This does not mean that we are made children by our obedience. Obedience does not make us children. We are children of God by the grace of adoption. And we are regenerated by God being brought to faith and repentance to obey Him in those things is the grace. And we put off. We, we put off the old man. We put off, we leave behind, it says here, those former lusts. Those former lusts. What, what formerly motivated us, what formerly drove us, no longer has any power over us. What formerly controlled you as a lost person, Christian, now does not control you. And we must not give ourselves over to those old desires. They have no power, but sometimes we give power. This directive, do not be conformed to the former lusts, this is in keeping with Romans 12, 2, where we're commanded, do not be conformed to the world. 
Being conformed to the world is the same as being conformed to the lusts of the world. This conforming, uh, when you are conformed to the world, when you're conformed to these lusts, it means that you give in to the indulgence of these sins, that you make room for them in your life, that you live and walk in these lusts and in sin. But Christians, notice these lusts are rightly called former lusts. Former lusts. Because we no longer walk in darkness. We served those lusts in our lostness before we were regenerate. When we walked according to the course of this world, but now... That way of life, and we really should say that's no way of life, that's a way of death. But that way is now former to us. Now those things are a matter of conviction of sin. They used to be what we boasted about. Now they're a matter of conviction of sin. Now they're a matter and a source of shame. Shame for our old lives. We were ignorant. We were foolish. We were slaves to sin. But how can a Christian still walk in the former lusts? How can we still live in service to sin? How can we, who are dead to sin, live any longer therein? John Gill again reminds us that it is fitting and proper for a Christian to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts. Do not walk as you did before. Scripture tells us you did not learn Christ in this way. Fifthly and finally, like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Be holy. Now this is not a command to find in ourselves an inherent holiness. Christian, whatever holiness we might have is only an alien and imputed holiness that all glory for it belongs to God. We are only enabled to this consequence of salvation because of the confidence of salvation in Jesus Christ. Be holy is, listen, be holy is a command of Scripture for all people, including lost people. But we recognize that the lost man is utterly incapable of obeying that command. Christian, you are not incapable. You are capable. You are able through Jesus Christ. We are children of God by faith in Jesus Christ, born again to a living hope. Therefore, we ought to be obedient children to resemble God in holiness and purity. Just as it should be the aim for every child to honor and obey and imitate their parents 
So every child of God is to honor, obey, and imitate our Heavenly Father. I love telling young boys. Now the goal is for you to be like your daddy. I love saying that because number one, it's true. And number two, it should give a father confidence and it should give a father a, a sense of responsibility in how he's living. And it should, it should mark out for that young man, I see now the goal. So sometimes we grow up, we, we, we don't know the goal, right? What's the goal? How do you become a man? Well, be like your dad. That's the goal. Well, if we instruct our young boys to be like their father, if we instruct young girls to be like their mother, then how can we not say as Christians, we are to be like our father? Every child of God is to honor, obey, and imitate our heavenly father. Calvin, when speaking of this, this quotation that Peter uses here, be holy for I am holy, he says this. He quotes a sentence which has been often repeated by Moses. For as the people of Israel were on every side surrounded by heathens from whom they might easily adopt the worst examples and innumerable corruptions, the Lord frequently recalled them to himself as though he said, you have to do with me. You are mine. So abstain from the pollutions of the Gentiles. Be holy for I am holy. This is the end, brothers and sisters, to which we are called. This is the goal for the Christian life. Holiness. This is the will of God for you. Your sanctification. And what is sanctification? An increasing in holiness. God has set us apart. He's called us out of the world. We are, as we read earlier in the text today, in the, in the scripture readings today, we are a peculiar people for him. So we ought to be holy and strive for holiness. We do see others as models and we follow men and women so often as examples and models for our life. Whether that's the cool kid in class or whether that's the athlete or the movie star, whoever that is. Sometimes in, in our day, we call these people influencers. Influencers and, and they do influence. But before that was a title, we still did the same thing. We ran headlong after them and we ran headlong into all kinds of sin. But for every child of God, we are not to follow the influencer. We are to follow our Heavenly Father. To come out from among them and be separate. We are not here called to be holy in the same way that God is holy. The, the end, the goal for the Christian is holiness, but not the same holiness that God has. We are called to grow and advance in the direction of holiness as far as a mere creature can until our life on earth is over, to grow in and advance in the direction of holiness. It is comforting to see that along with the command here to be holy, we have this reminder that the Holy One is He who has called us. The Holy One. 
He himself sanctifies us. And it's by his calling and his sanctifying power that we are enabled to obey this high and lofty command. Be holy. Now, now let's, we need to hurry. The verse says here, be holy in all your behavior. It's in every part of our life that holiness is to be pursued. We should have holiness, the sense of it, the flavor of it, the, the scent of it throughout our whole being. The grace of God in saving us, by the grace of God in saving us, we are positionally holy. We are positionally holy. Now, by the same power that saved us, we are to pursue holiness. That is to pursue practical holiness. The command here is, is not to pursue positional holiness. You understand what I mean by that? Our position with God in Christ is that of perfect holiness. So we are not to pursue, pursue positional holiness because that was purchased by Jesus Christ and it was purchased fully. It was earned by his life and death and we add nothing to that and there is no pursuit of it. We trust in it. And it is applied to us by the spirit and the word. So we don't pursue positional holiness. We do pursue practical holiness. Internal holiness for a Christian is supposed. Positional holiness is supposed. And that internal positional holiness is the work of God without any input of the creature. But the command here, be holy, is for sanctification. It is for practical holiness. Live lives which are actually holy. We are to live holy in all our behavior, in all manner of living is to be holy for us. Gill says, it is walking worthy of him who has called us to his kingdom and glory and walking worthy of that calling wherein we are called and a following of God as dear obedient children and what is according to his will and what he directs unto and requires. We are to live lives of holiness. This command to be holy then has added to it this reason. It's an argument for the command. And it's taken from Leviticus 11.44. You shall be holy for I am holy. Now this argument would have held much weight with Peter's first audience. And it should hold weight with us. Arguing from the nature of God, from his perfection, from his holiness. He's reminded us that we are bought with a price, that we are sprinkled with the blood of Jesus, that we are made heirs to this inheritance through the grace of adoption. Now you be holy because your father is holy. So we have these imperatives, the consequences of salvation. Gird up the loins of your minds. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. 
As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were in which were yours in ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior, because it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. Though holiness equal to God can never be attained by a creature, so far as we are capable of it, we should pursue it. Beloved, I fear too often that we measure our holiness by some other standard. We measure our holiness by the world. Well, at least I'm not as bad as that person. Or we measure our holiness with one another, brothers and sisters in the church, and we can come up with relatively slight differences. But when was the last time that you evaluated your holiness by God himself? He has given us a command. You know, through the commandments, through the moral law, what is right and what is wrong. You know what is sin and what is righteousness. And he has freed us from the bondage of sin. And he has enabled us to do righteous works by the power of Christ. So why? Christians, are we content to be only as holy as we currently are? Why are we content with our current level of holiness? There should be in every Christian a continuing sense of dissatisfaction with our level of holiness. Now, now listen, I'm not saying that we don't recognize our limitations. I'm not saying that we don't celebrate our, our current victories over sin. I'm not saying that we walk around depressed because we are dissatisfied. But we cannot become content with our holiness that we have today. With only that much holiness. We must strive to advance in holiness to progress in holiness until the day that our holiness is made perfect in heaven. Now think about it. What other area of life do we see some growth, some advancement, some movement, and we say, that's enough. No more is required. In the development of your new baby, do you say, wow, they crawled and they said, dada, we are satisfied with that. That's enough. No more growth, no more maturity, no more advancement required. Our, our children grow and they go to school and they're educated. And we say, well, they learned a lot last year. So this year we're not expecting much. Do we say that? You learned so much last year. We want to see that built upon. We want to see more. Uh, what about when you go to the doctor? Do you say, wow, he learned all the greatest advancements of medical science in 1982. No need for him to learn any more stuff. That's good. That's all we need. We don't settle in any other area of life. So why, Christians, are we satisfied with our current level of holiness? Ask yourself, have I grown in holiness over the last six months? Over the last 12 
If you haven't grown in holiness, then beloved, strive for holiness now and more and more. And, and set a date to evaluate. How am I doing in this? This is a measurable thing. Do I have more victory over that besetting sin that I did last year? Am I more faithful in these righteous works than I was last year? Am I applying myself to the means of grace in the body of Christ more now than I was? And when we evaluate and we do see that there is growth, when we do see that there's advancement in holiness, don't quit. Let's build on what, on what we've seen already. Let's live from faith to faith, building on a foundation of holiness. Some of us need to consider our holiness, our, our growth in holiness and our pursuit of it. We need to repent of our complacency we need to repent of our utter lack of attention in the pursuit of holiness. Holiness is the nature of God and it is the will of God for every single one of His children. So all who are truly children of God, all who love Him, love His holiness. We give thanks for his salvation and the confidence of it, but then we live in the consequences of his grace. So Christians, prepare your minds, gird up the loins of your minds, keep sober in spirit, fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves in all your behavior because it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm. Father, I pray that you apply these things to us. Apply these things to your people. That considering your holiness and knowing our own sin, that you would draw sinners to Jesus Christ to to throw themselves on him for mercy and grace and forgiveness. God, we pray this in Christ's name.